Hello again. The crack of the beer means it's time for Joker Man. Is that a beer? Or is it a cider? Yes. The crack of the beer. And they uh, have already opened mine. Um, I should have done this before we clapped. It's fine. No, it's... It means that the, it's the starter's pistol for Jokerman podcast, and we're back. Um, we had we had took like I don't know. It wasn't really a real break, but this is a little late from our regular schedule. Um, it's uh, post Thanksgiving, post my birthday, so that, you know the the two big holidays are done. The two most important uh, uh, winter fall kind of events: Thanksgiving and your birthday. I can't think of any others. That happened around this time. Yeah. Did did you get everything you wanted for your birthday? Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yes. Everything. I guess. Did you get uh, Xbox or PlayStation? I'm not getting those. I don't do. I don't <laughs> play video games really. Um, I I did when I was a child. <laughs> The, the only thing I didn't get for my birthday is uh, a new episode of Jokerman, so I have to make one with you, Ian. Yes, yeah. Well, here we are, back at it, with slightly shittier audio on my end. I apologize in advance to all the listeners. Ian is in um, California, and I'm in Brooklyn. We've uh, traded uh, traded coasts since the beginning of Jokerman. Yeah, we're back to the, the classic Jokerman classic setup. Jokerman coast to coast. Yeah. The bi-coastal nature of our podcast uh, is unavoidable. Today we uh, we are talking about a record which has its roots in a different place than either of those places. It's a record that is very much of the South. I'm talking about New Orleans. Louisiana. Sure are. The 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 bayou they call it. I'm Evan, by the way, and that's Ian. If you're Yeah. Still the same people as always. Um yeah, the same ones. No guests this time. Uh the record we're talking about is one that's called Oh Mercy. <laughs> sure. Do you is. think of it like that? Do you think it's like Oh Mercy? Yeah, I think uh, uh it's it's sort of like a oh mercy, I or is it like a is it like an oh mercy like you just saw a, a perfect ten on the street, or is it like an oh mercy like Shakespeare type of I'm I'm thinking of the great issues. To me, it's I think mm-hmm. it's a little bit of both. I think it's uh, more of like a. Like a, you see something that is disappointing or confusing to you. Oh, yeah. And you're just like, oh, what's going on there? Oh, mercy. The other, oh, mercy, like, Lord have mercy. Oh, God. Right, right, right. right. Um, so I, I guess it's a good title for a record, uh, actually. There's a lot you could uh, think about, a lot to think about here. It gives you a lot of a lot of competing uh, different meanings. Um, I said... Lord have mercy to myself recently because I, uh, encountered, I suppose we sort of encountered, uh, together this one, um, an account on, uh, Instagram. Oh yeah. I forgot about this. Yeah. Um, it's a Lou Reed air quotes, big air quotes, fan account end quote. Um, that, that not that they, specifically call themselves a fan account, but you know, that's what they're set up as. Right. Maybe I won't name names. Um, it's called the Lou Reed, the Lou Reed project. Um, and, uh, <laughs> it's, uh, the beef that we have, the issue that Ian and I both, um, feel, um, makes them the true enemy of Jokerman podcasts and our, in the Jokerman podcast ethos is that, right. um, Whoever runs that account was doing an AMA and ask me anything. And uh, it became clear that he like straight up doesn't like half of Lou Reed's music. Like the, like literally just after 1982 is like, I don't think any of that's really that good. 
that's like well, I guess if we're it depends if we're going by number of records put out or number of oh, it's years a, as a it's about artist, but if the halfway if, mark in it's terms more of, than halfway if we're going by years because it's eighty two to two thousand eleven in loot. That's that's in terms decades. of studio albums. I, I mean, it's pretty much right smack in the middle. Um, right. So discounting pretty much out of hand his whole latter half of his catalog. And, you know, before you stop and say, Ian, Evan, isn't that what you two do on Jokerman? Don't you shit all over later period records by Bob Dylan? The answer is uh, not so simple. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's not, that is not exactly what we do. Um, I don't know if we wanted to like, get all up into this, but um, before we talk about the record, uh, that's on our plate today, but I think to sum it up, uh, we feel that Jokerman podcast is, is about, it's a way to discredit this line of thinking that the youth of, of a given artist is their most important, most, uh, the most timeless, most interesting work. And that, uh, I think uh, if if nothing else, we want to imbue the listener with a, a feeling of continuing possibility and curiosity about the later material and about the continuing saga of an artist. In our first episode, we said something about how the uh, problem we see with a lot of Bob Dylan media is uh, that it focuses primarily on the records that which we of course don't discuss on this pod. I mean, I, I, I think that it is what we talked about a little bit at the beginning of this podcast. Oh, those many months ago and is something that we've developed on throughout. Um, and something that I've, I have become more certain of, I think in the, however many months it's been at this point is, is like the, the worthwhile nature of, uh, digging through all of these um, less appreciated uh, nooks and crannies of an artist like Bob's discography, when and Lou obviously fits into that same kind of rubric, um, although he doesn't necessarily have the same um, uh, critically lauded high points in the latter half of his career. I'm not saying that the Lou records are any lesser than Bob's, but you know the the uh, the musical press did not seem to laud him the, the same way that they did Bob with your time out of minds and your uh, rough and rowdy ways, for instance. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, I, you know, it, w- with these artists, we just, the, the person they are like that, like for the, the Lou Reed fan account, it, this, this person is a fan of uh, someone who existed over half a century ago at this point, um, 1970, when the Velvet Underground put out their last record was literally half a century ago. Um, and, and so like just the concept of, of saying that everything that this person that I love so much, I I love them so much that I'm going to open up an Instagram account devoted to posting about how much I love them, but I'm only going to appreciate them for this like slice of their life. Yeah. Yeah. This, I only like this person for these 14 years before these 14 years didn't matter after the 14 years it's dog shit. It's just such a weird kind of, um, alien sort of, uh, approach. Like if you're just a casual kind of fan, sure. You know, put on the, put on the best of Lou Reed, the best of Bob Dylan and just be happy with what the record company put together for you. And, and that's fine. But like, I just, you know, these, these, like, uh, these people who are such diehards about artists like this, but only a certain period of the artist. It, it just doesn't, it doesn't compute for me. I think uh, that what happens is that for some people, they develop this crystalline image of the artist at his, the hottest he'll ever be in like the sense of our youth or, or she or they. Yes. I guess I'm just thinking of Lou and Dylan. Yes. They, um, you know, in from a, a youth obsessed cultures perspective, that early 20s uh, spot really is the, the prime time of your life, to quote Daft Punk. Um, right. And uh, I think that when that image is so burned into somebody's brain and so associated with um, 
what they want out of this artist, then when it becomes untenable to suspend the disbelief as the, the artist in question ages out of that uh, being hot, you know, that moment, um, it, put it on a little weight. Yeah. Put on a little yeah. weight, start going bald, um, whatever, just start dressing less cool in your opinion. Just not sexy. Um, it, it becomes repulsive to, to some people. I think they, they see that as a reflection of their own, uh, propensity to, to become uncool, to become old and fat and irrelevant. And, um, without really taking a generous and um, kind approach to this artist and thinking of them beyond their looks and their, um, their sort of idealized vision of this person, they throw everything past a certain point into the dustbin and um, just hold themselves up in this nostalgia bunker. Little do they realize, you know, that the, the dying guy uh, who's still making music is way cooler than they'll ever be. Something that we sort of also discussed is the concept of vibes in music. You know, music is vibes, vibes is music, and vibes accumulate with age. Elvis Costello recently put it very well when he was talking about um, a, a bunch of shit. He was like just kind of running his mouth on music and he was talking about rough and rowdy ways and about uh, murder most foul. And he said, uh, I'm paraphrasing, but something about, especially in murder most foul, all of these decades worth of um, references and allusions. And some of them are like high, high minded references from literature. And then some of them are nightmare on Elm street. Like it's comical and interesting. And it's like all piled up, on this great platter before you, uh, that's something that only someone who lived that long could do. Um, who had all of this sort of lived experience to use a, uh, like liberal arts ass phrase. Yes. Um, but what I'm saying is we, you know, old people give them a chance. They're not too bad. And think about what, what we would be missing if, if we all subscribe or if, if everyone lived their life the, the way this Lou Reed fan wanted them to. We wouldn't have uh, such highlights from 2020 as Murder Most Foul, as False Prophet, yeah. as No More Lockdown. Right. <laughs> some, of the greatest, <laughs> some of the greatest songs of the year. Yeah. Well, there's a new one coming out with uh, Van and... Clapton, and it's uh, called Stand and Deliver, and it comes out on December 18th, and it's really going to mm. spice up the song of the year discussion to a fever pitch. I think it's going to just uh, blow that out of the water, and people are going to have to yeah, all the, scramble. Uh, all the music blogs and stuff you know, usually put out their, their best song, best album of the year lists you know, right around now. A couple of them have already come out. Uh, over the last couple of days, but I think I think some of the bigger guns are holding back this right. year in anticipation of Stand and Deliver, the, yeah. forth, the forthcoming Stand and Deliver track, um, because that's going to be such a strong contender for you know the number one uh, you know best song of the year. Yes, um, I can't wait. Today we're talking about a record that I guess comes at a point when many people we're probably starting to feel sort of like they were ready to, to feel done with the uh, Bob Dylan um, right. in a similar fashion. Um, I forget who said it, but I remember seeing or reading somewhere a quote about the sort of spirit of, of Bob fandom in the world at, in 1988 1989, around this time, where uh, people were starting to wonder if he was ever good because the records had been just so bad for so long, it seemed, um, during such crucial years for other 
up and coming styles, exciting artists, um, breaking ground. How many down in the grooves can you take before you just give up? Right. And I, I think that's actually a perfect point or, or something that I've, I've realized over the last couple of months doing this show is had, had you been a Bob fan or at least a Bob observer in 88, 89, I think it, it's easy to see why you would have had such a low kind of opinion of him and, and thought that he had been operating at uh, a pretty low ebb for, for so long. But I, I think it's become clear to me, at least over these last however many episodes, that the 80s were actually a really kind of fertile and robust period for Bob. Obviously, he wasn't consistently putting out the just, you know, wall-to-wall masterpieces that he had been, uh, you know, uh, 10, 15 years earlier. But, I mean, really, on, on every record going back to at least... Uh, you know, shot of love and saved are you know <laughs> they are what they are, but but everything since then I think has had at least something to speak for it. Uh, whether that's obviously Joker Man on uh, Infidels to uh, Dark Eyes and uh, Tight Connection on Empire Burlesque mm-hmm. to my favorite Brownsville Girl right. <laughs> to even some of the vibier songs on Down in the Groove. Like there there's there's a lot of really great kind of shit here and just like just waving it all away with a, 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 a casual and thoughtless sweep of your hand and saying, Oh, Bob, after such and such a period of time, it's just not, it's not of interest to me. It's, it's so, uh, I don't know. I, I, I don't vibe with it. It makes me wonder about Bob's Renaissance that actually will happen here. Um, right. He does have a return um, to critical favor that I think is actually very dramatic. Um, but for whatever reason, the eighties found him unable to get a foothold, uh, critically really not catch a break, um, in some ways. And I, I have to wonder if, the, if the 1990s, which we're about to hit mark a sort of general change of opinion about what music ought to sound like, what, um, what they, what people want out of someone like Bob Dylan. Not that there's that many other people like him, but, um, there's maybe more of a, uh, an appetite for someone just singing sort of straightforward songs about, you're about human experiences relative to maybe what was coming out at around this time. There's, you know, a glut of overwrought bullshit in the eighties and then early nineties. Um, and suddenly Bob Dylan starts to seem kind of like a breath of fresh air with his, um, sort of steady reliance on, on, foolproof types of songwriting, yeah. which, which I think is something that we're actually seeing Bob return to. Um, so he's sort of shifting gears back to something a little bit more um, essential, a little bit more basic on this record in, and it works in his favor. Um, I think we said there's so many moments throughout the eighties where it seems like Bob Dylan takes for granted, maybe undersells himself or undervalues himself slightly. Uh, feeling like he has to adopt all of this studio um, maximalism to stay viable when the best thing is always Bob Dylan being confidently himself and feeling confident to not gild the lily. So uh, I think it's a really fortuitous thing for him that we find him with Oh Mercy um, Pairing up with Daniel Lanois, a producer who absolutely recognizes and understands this and is it's clear to him and it's clear on the finished product of this record that um, it, it was it's a project made to highlight and give weight to Bob Dylan, um, the person and the, the presence. Right. Yeah, I, th- I think that. I mean, one thing to note with this record is that you just, you know, you just said it's it's important or it's it's best when Bob doesn't gild the lily, 
production wise, um, on, on a lot of his material. And that was a major sticking point or a major flaw with a lot of his eighties output. Uh, oh, mercy is a very production heavy kind of record. Uh, and I know, but I know you were, well, but that's the thing. It's right? done smartly. Right. Exactly. It's not that, it's not that the record isn't, isn't overproduced, um, or isn't heavily produced. It is, but it's, it's heavily produced in the right way. Uh, and I think that that's the difference with Oh Mercy versus the records that had come out, uh, you know, the couple years before this is just like, you know, it, it is clear at this point that Bob can't just go into Columbia Records and, um, you know, get a, get a, um, mixing engineer and wrestle up whatever randos are just, you know, drifting around Manhattan for the weekend and bang out, you know, classic tracks, you know, at the drop of a hat the way that he used to. Um, you know, he, he does need to have sort of another kind of presence there to guide him and to build him up and to turn this stuff into, you know, really high quality kind of shit. But, but yeah, with, uh, Lanois here is, is the exact right person, the exact right guy at the exact right time in order to do that. Okay. And, um, and, and like I said, it, it is a very production heavy record, uh, record, but it's, it's heavy in the right way. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, and it, it adds to these tracks and works with them. It complements the tracks instead of, uh, you know, kind of uh, contrasting and working against. Well, yeah, it, does, what Bob it doesn't is to smother do. them. It's meant to, as da- as Daniel Lanois himself put it, um, frame the 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 center of the song. Um, sure. It was uh, in an interview uh, with Lanois that I was uh, watching. He was talking about how the challenge with working with Bob on this was that. Um, he was sort of taken aback that there was no band, that it wasn't done in that old off the cuff style live, but rather Bob was singing with a uh, drum machine and sort of really rudimentary backing. And then after the fact, they were able to dress these songs up with the right session players coming in, you know, handpicked to come in with certain uh very colorful or uh moody atmospherics um the the thing that got bob dylan on board with using lanois apparently was um he was in at new orleans for just being on, on the road and he had heard that uh lanois or he he came over to see lanois who had been recommended to him by Bono. Lanois at the time was working on a record with the Neville brothers called Yellow Moon. And on that record, there are two Bob Dylan covers with God on our side and the Ballad of Hollis Brown. And so Bob was able to hear those and then hear what Lanois was doing with them. And then he apparently said, this sounds like a record. And uh, the deal was done. You could look at this as sort of Bob really deciding to take the idea seriously of making a a record with a real producer, capital P producer, whereas it with uh, Knocked Out Loaded and Empire Burlesque, it was kind of like a random who's who of people in this walking in and out of the studio trying to kind of be hot shots and gussy shit up, and then Bob kind of rolling with that. But um, this is a different type of beast. Lanois built this studio for the Nelson brothers from the ground up. So it was like a very vibey, moody, interesting space. And that's really his how he approaches making records, is he seems to be someone who really takes seriously the talent he's working with and wants to lean into giving them a, a kind of a temple-like atmosphere to their recording and making it into something that inspires a sense of seriousness and respect. And, uh, that is the polar opposite of Bob Dylan style. (laughs) Certainly at this point in time, probably like in general, I mean, he's never been one to, um, do that style of recording. Of course, the only other record I think that really fits that bill that I just described is of course the other record he did with Daniel Lanois, Time Out of with Mind. Lanois. Right. Yeah. The much beloved Time Out of Mind. Well, um, shall we 
Shall we dive into Oh Mercy? I, I know we've yeah, probably got yeah. more to say, but uh, let's, uh, let's hear that old harmonica. Side, side one, side A. Track one. <laughs> track A, side one. It's called Political World. <laughs> and I guess I, I'd be remiss. Every time I start this record, I think about how it should start. Which is um, with we can't we we got to save some of this for the bootleg series. Yeah, well, suffice it to say, for now, there is a different song that should start this record, which was cut, uh, and it's called "A Series of Dreams." I believe it was the one Lanois wanted to have start the record, and it's easy to see why. Um, it's not easy to see why Bob Dylan would decide against using it because it's probably one of the best songs he's ever recorded. (laughs) (laughs) I think it is easy to see why Bob uh, decided against uh, using it. And it it goes back to the comment that Bob uh, uh, just sabotages himself on his records and cuts the two or three best songs that he's written for all of them and just leaves them on the floor for whatever fucking reason, which is absolutely the case with series of dreams. Maybe the best, if it had been on this, this record, maybe the best song, certainly, you know, top three. Yeah. Um, it's an absolute, like, it's a perfect song. It sounds like a totally different, like it, I think that if it was on there, you really would have some reason to say, you know what I'm going to say, but what, what would this record would be the best uh, since blood on the tracks? Right. Yes. Everyone's favorite comment. Um, but yeah, as as it stands, series of dreams not on the record. Uh, go go give it a spin at the very end of the bootleg series volume three. Technically, it's the last song on that first triple volume. We will we will get there very shortly once we get to the bootleg series coming up momentarily. Mm-hmm. But the version of the record that we have in reality, uh, yeah, begins with the song. Uh, we live in a society. We live in a yes. That's <laughs> what was your first reaction when you heard this song and the things in it um, entered your mind, the ideas and the concepts that this song brings to the table. What did you think? Because I imagine this is probably the first time you ever heard stuff like this. Yeah, it was sort of an eye-opening experience for me. You know, you're just going around on a day-to-day basis thinking, no, we, we live in a, uh, a normal world, just a, a, reg- a regular world. And things happen, you know, sometimes there's one kind of president, other times there's another, but, uh, you know, it just sort of comes and goes with the seasons. But in, in reality, when you really think about it, it's, it's a political world that we live in, not just... A, a, a non-political world. And so, you know, mm-hmm. kind of hearing it put this way was a really uh, amazing way to think about it. I was disgusted. <laughs> the things that he says on this, um, wisdom is thrown in the jail. This is exactly what I didn't want to happen. <laughs> <laughs> It, it seems like the last place he would want wisdom to be is is thrown into jail, rotting in a cell, yeah. misguided as hell. It's not good. No. Um. So while I I think this song is pretty pretty good, I re, I do think that it it's hurtful to hear. <laughs> it it really does kind of sound like uh, a song that. Uh, that the Joker would like. You know, this this song is talked about quite a bit in Chronicles. Bob Dylan talks a bit about how it was kind of a song that was the first thing he'd really worked on in a while. Like the first original thing that he'd really been thinking about. Like it came to him all at once. And it um, just a, a bolt of lightning. Yeah, I a, think it, a vision out of the blue. I think it came to him all at once. Is is what I remember reading in Chronicles, and then he had this song, and then slowly, I think he started making more writing more. Um, he was in Malibu, I think, when he was writing this. Right. 
And in a lot of ways, it has the feeling of a classic Dylan song, like classic meaning from like the 60s. It, it has production wise a kind of it, it feels of a piece with maybe something like subterranean homesick blues or something like that. But yeah, it's a lyrically, you know, much more straightforward than that. Uh, yeah, to be sort of not glib about it for a second. Um, it, it's like sort of a, a half smart song, right. but also half not smart. Like, it, like there is, there is something there that he's headed in the direction of. Like I, I kind of see what he's getting at. I think it's the, um, the main lyric. We live in a political world. It sounds like maybe he could have done a couple more runs on a couple more revisions on that. Yes. Like the rest of the song, it doesn't feel as dumb as that, uh, or right. as, as I mean, not dumb, just obvious. Like a lot of the lyrics are more interesting, clever, um, colorful than we live in a political world. Political world, yeah. It's it's definitely it's sort of of a piece uh, with of, disease of conceit from later well, on in the record. Of, yeah, disease of conceit, uh, absolutely. Uh, but you know, even some of the other tracks, the, these bigger picture, bigger idea tracks that he's written over the last decade or so, uh, whether that's your Union Sundown or your No Time to Think, um, these songs that have these big kind of animating ideas behind them. Like you know the earlier the the classics were your masters of war and such, uh, but they aren't they aren't totally sharp. But there you there. go, masters of war is a way to talk about war that's not having a song that's called "We live in a world that has war in it." <laughs> you know, we live in a war world. We live in a violent world. We li- yeah, if we live in a violent world. Uh, it's it's said in a way that has a lot of gravity and feels like. Oh, I better listen to this. You masters right. of war. That said, uh, like you just said, yeah, I think it's this, the half that is smart, so to speak, is what makes it, uh, with coupled with the production, I think uh, an effective song um, more, yeah, more that- than not. Yeah, that's that's the thing. That that's the other side of the coin here is like as as flawed of a song as it is lyrically, and you know it, it is certainly semi flawed in that regard. Uh, the, the production carries it through, and and it's a totally successful song, and it's a great opening uh, opening track. Um, uh, none the uh, nonetheless, uh, it's because moody. It has this. Yeah, it's moody. It's vibey. It's it's got such a sort of like propulsive energy to it. Um, and you can tell just right off the bat with this record, like imagine putting this album on after having listened to, um, uh, uh, down in the groove immediately before it. Oh, it's night and day. This is, yeah, it's, it's got to sound like, you know, just like blasting into another dimension or something. Um, and, um, and so you see, yeah, so, so right off the bat, I think that just the, the way that the, the song sounds, uh, and the feeling that it has makes it clear that like this is a very different this this is just a different sort of thing that's going on here than has been for uh you know for for so long at this point. The video is quite something. Have you seen it? I haven't. I didn't know there was a video for this. There sure is. You should you should watch it. Whoa. Okay, it's, cool. Uh, it's pretty good. It's um it's it it is very much of a piece uh of the with the song. Uh it it consists of Bob and a couple people in his band on stage in some sort of like, you know, kind of dark lit banquet hall kind of thing with a bunch of uh, like middle-aged gray haired men in suits uh, who are like having this big kind of rich lobster steak dinner. Um, And then there's all sorts of like uh, beautiful uh, blonde bombshells that are like dining with them. Wow. Um, This this is really cool in my head. Yeah, it's, it's it's less cool in reality yeah, than probably. I think it, I'm making it sound like. But it is very funny, and it is very like extremely on the nose, extremely like too 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 precise. Is it in, in black and white imagery. or color? No, it's in color. Okay. And Bob is sort of like uh, he's sort of like he's not shown too much, and he's kind of like not looking at the camera, and he's in the shadows and stuff. And there's some sort of like big like massive. Uh, painting behind him. It's, uh, it's, it's very, um, it's very Gen X, uh, I would say in terms of, uh, uh, you know, political statement. Sounds cool to Um, me, but yeah, it's a, it's a good, it's a fun, 
fun snapshot of moment in time. I think this is the only that's the only video from this record. I, I do think that if this song was played really loud, I might just like really feel more into it. It's got some great playing. Um there's just like some really snappy drums and uh cool little guitar licks, but it's all kind of sparse and like menacing and this very it, it's well done. Um yeah. And that's that's the production for you. Like I think the the what whatever he's saying, like it 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 doesn't matter ultimately because it it comes through um or the song comes through. It it's just like it's got a real kind of galloping uh rhythm to it. Like that 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 fade in, I would say like is yeah. so cool. Yeah. Um and uh and yeah, you've got that moody kind of twangy guitar at the beginning. Yeah, it's just like, it, you feel like yeah, it's awesome. Yeah, no, it's great. Um, um Good start to the record. Even yeah. if it isn't series of dreams. No, even if it isn't series of dreams, which in some way I'm happy to have to sort of stand on its own, but I wish it got the, you know, the treatment and was featured on a real album. Right. The recognition it deserves. Um, the next song where, where teardrops fall is one that has really uh, sort of grown on me in some ways. Um, it's not a super ambitious song, but in a lot of ways, it reminds me of uh, something you might hear from Roy Orbison. Um, it's got, I mean, that title is such a Roy vibe. Right. Um, and the feeling of the song, the, the lyrics and everything, it's kind of vague. And it's just about being sad, but it's kind of not just about that. Um, it's all over the place. But it has this kind of... Um, I guess a fifties sort of feeling to it with that sort of lilting, like weepy guitar line at the, it goes through. Right. Yeah. The guitar. Whatever. Yeah. You're going to put, you're going to plug in the actual audio clip for that or, or just <laughs> I don't know. Um, my dad was like, you know, it's not, you're not really supposed to use any music that's copywritten ever. I think it's fine. It's like fair play. It's fine. Is that what it's um, called? Fair play. Fair, fair use. Play. Yeah. Um, yeah, this song is very vibey. It's great. Um, it's very simple lyric, uh, which is sort of a theme on this record. I think uh, a, a lot of the strength in, in these songs and the songwriting is that Bob is not trying to do too much. Mm-hmm. Um, Political World is really kind of one of the instances where he is doing a little too much, and we see how it turns uh, out. Um, this one is just like you know where teardrops fall. You're totally right. It's a very simple kind of arresting image, very kind of classical. Um, you, you totally can envision someone like Roy singing a, a, a lyric like that, if not this song the, the itself. Um, guitar, very vibes. Uh, the horn at the end, also very vibes. Um, it, 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 the, the thing with this song, I think, that it really comes through for me and then you know, kind of uh, continues for the rest of the record is uh, Bob's voice also, we haven't, which we haven't yeah, talked no, about. His so delivery much. and his voice... It's the this first really time the, where he's really owning the weathered quality. He's exactly, he's, exactly. This is the, this. Re- this is the invention of old Bob. Yes, in a way, record. you you know, we talked, I think, amongst ourselves about the point at which we could say the latter, the mature period of Bob Dylan really starts, and I think that you could make the argument that this is the real first, the first glimpse of that. Um, Absolutely. Where in this record, Bob Dylan is not for once. Like, it's like a great weight off our shoulders as listeners and uh, uh, probably of his as an artist. He's not fighting his age. And um, right. it's what makes so many compelling moments ring true on this album. Totally. Yeah. He's, he's leaning into this grizzled weathered, 
uh, you know, kind of um, just uh, like dark and deep and, and robust voice for the first time. And, and that doesn't mean he's not singing well um, or, or singing in general, but he's just like, there's an affect to this new sort of a tone that he's adopted here that really just gives all of these songs, even these simple songs like this one, which is, you know, sort of a trifle in terms of the, the actual lyrical matter. It just gives it all this, this heaviness and this, this weight and this spirit uh, that had been missing up until this point. Um, and so the combination of, yeah, of, of the Lanois production, as well as this, this, this new affect that Bob has adopted, I think really is just like, you know, they go, they go so well together. I mean, you and, could, you could call it a trifle, but there's, if you look at the lyrics and you really read them along, like there are so many nice and sort of moody nighttime moonlit images, uh, and and old timey illusions. We banged the drums slowly and played the fife lowly. Singing about a fife, um, you know the song in my heart. In the sh- in the turning of twilight, in the shadows of moonlight, you can show me a new place to start. Um, I don't know if you know this, but much, if not all, of this record was recorded at night, and Bob Dylan wanted it that way. Um, I think they had just maybe done it a few times by happenstance recording at night in New Orleans. And then it became just sort of the mood for the whole record. Lanois has said that this is a very nighttime record. And I think that that is something that is important to come as a listener thinking, um, thinking about when you listen to this record, because, um, there's so many, if not all of the songs, I think have that sort of like dark night of the soul vulnerability. It's like his, you know, it's like in the wee small hours or something. Uh, or, uh, it, it's got that energy. Right. Yeah. It's, it's a very vibe based record. Um, and, uh, and yeah, it, it wasn't, I, I didn't mean to say that the lyrics were, were, um, were bad or anything. No, no, but they, just, but they, they are, um, they're not going for like, it's not, it's not Joker man. Um, but, but even though it isn't, it's still, uh, just it, whatever he's saying, he could just be, you know, coming up with, uh, uh, Gaga Google words <laughs> and the, com- the combination of the, 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 uh, instrumentation and the production and the delivery, it, it would all come through. It's amazing. That said, I think that this song, like the first song, I, I do feel like that he's intentionally going for something a little bit antiquated almost. And I do wonder if the experience that Bob had with the Wilburys is informing this approach um, a bit because that was, as we discussed uh, to great length, a project which was very informed by an older style of pop write songwriting um, sort of fifties, ideals in terms of like 50s early 60s energy to a lot of those songs and i think this song really channels that in a way yeah yeah uh, i i'm i'm with you on that i think it's uh it's it's very classical in terms of of the imagery uh as as a couple of the other tracks on this uh on this record are like but, it's it's slightly cheeky yeah and then we we really lean into that with the next song, right? Uh, track three, everything is broken. Which uh, this is maybe the silliest and uh, dumbest song on the record, as far as I'm concerned. It is it is silly for sure, but I don't think that it thinks it's not. It's a very um, confidently silly number, and it's pretty short. It's not particularly ambitious. Right. I think this was actually the the first single on the record. Interestingly, that's pretty funny. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's about how everything is broken. There's, there's a very kind of funny, uh, guitar that, that, uh, is playing throughout this entire, um, song. I don't know how else to say it. Um, it just the, the tone or the tuning or whatever. It's just, it sounds silly. Um, and, uh, and yeah, Bob is, is talking about how everything is, 
everything is broken. Broken bottles, broken plates, broken switches, broken gates, broken dishes, broken parts. Streets are filled with broken hearts, broken words, never meant to be spoken. Everything is broken. That's right. Um, vibes still uh, still pull off here, though. You know, I think it's uh, even even as sort of silly and lighthearted as this one is. It still um, is uh, is successful somehow. Um, I can't imagine a song like this on another record. Yeah. Um, again, that's why Just with I any think other the sort Wilburys, of production treatment or whatever. Like, uh, but 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 that's what r- makes me think of the Wilburys. Is like I do feel like that freshness in in quotes is something that maybe Bob was thinking about when he, when this came around or uh that it's just kind of a really off the cuff sort of silly idea that um is just uh you know it's on this record sure is what can i say takes up takes up a spot on uh on the first side probably and i do i do think about it in reference to the first track um you know you've got a, a song called everything is broken which is silly but also a song about the very fucked up and political world. It, it sort of paints a plus with where, when teardrops fall or where teardrops fall, we're painting a picture so far that is kind of a rye. And um, uh, he's, you know, he sort of sardonic uh, attitude uh, in, in these songs. Right about the state of the world. But I think the next song is where that the record sort of starts to take a turn for be, the more earnest in a, in a way Absolutely. where it, it starts to um, everything that we've set up so far actually sort, kind of lands. And um, we're given a song that is uh, not a joke and not, not trying to be cute. Yeah. That would be ring them bells. Uh, sort of stereotypically or, or commonly, oftenly held up as as one of the highlight standout tracks on this record, and I'm always loath to subscribe to the conventional wisdom in things like this, especially from sources such as the cursed allmusic.com. But this really is just a knockout kind of, you know, uh, uh, sit you on your ass and and make you stare with your eyes wide open kind of track. It's, um, it, and mm-hmm. it actually, like, it, it, it has taken me a while to get to that point. Like, when I first heard it, initially, I remember thinking, like, oh, this is, you know, it's, it's fine. Um, but there's nothing special here. And it, it kind of comes and goes three and a half minutes or something. But the more I've listened to it um, over time and, and um, kind of just, just let it, wash over me and, and let myself sink into it. It's, it's just like, it, it's only growing and my estimation of it is only growing. It's, it's really a, it's a simple song. There isn't a whole lot going on here. Um, it's a grower, not a shower. Grower, not a shower. Uh, very, very well said. Sort of similar to what's going on, um, at, at the end of, uh, Slow Train, um, with, um, what's the last song on that? What's when the, He Returns. When He Returns, yeah. Where, where it's sort of just a, a showcase for Bob's voice. Uh, where it's just him singing and a piano, um, which is mostly what's going on here on on uh, Ring Them Bells. Um, but it, you know, you you kind of get the sense if you're envisioning this this song being performed. Um, you know, Bob is on stage on his own, and there's just a a single spotlight over his head, and it's just him him yeah. up there, and it's just it, you know, it, it's all the success of the song relies entirely on his his delivery, his performance of it. And, um, and yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a knockout. Um, I I think his, his, his vocal delivery, his singing here is, is some of the strongest that I've ever heard from him ever in any circumstance. You know, it's really interesting that you do bring up, uh, saved or, um, I mean, a slow train, um, either way, because I, I think that there are certain points on this record that actually are really interesting when you think about them in, um, with those in mind, with the Christian records in mind, because it seems like this record in some ways is the resurgence of Bob Dylan trying to access those uh, moral ideals, that sort of um, big picture 
big, heavy, sad heart type of songwriting. Um, but this time he's, he's returning to it again. It's without the crutch or without the, the, um, the self-imposed context of it being religious. It, it right. is actually just him returning to that same territory. There are certain lyrics on this song that are, would be absolutely at home on anything unsaved or, or slow train. Like the, the lines about the mountains being filled with lost sheep um, and the shepherd. Uh, no, I don't know. What, where is the shepherd? He's gone away. I forget what he says. Yeah. I mean, um, right. Uh, right. In the first, the first line, right. Uh, Ring them bells. Ye heathen from the city that drinks. Ye heathen. Yeah. yeah. You're hearing like old language, old with an E at the end of it. Uh, it's very beautiful. And, um, again, the, the sort of nocturnal atmosphere of this record, it is sort of a midnight hour type of, type of experience. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the next song actually makes that completely impossible to ignore because it starts with the sound of crickets. Yes, yeah. Next song, definitely very atmospheric. Uh, just one other... But one more thing, yeah, about the... Uh, I don't want to scoot us along too quick from Ring Them Bells. Right. What, what, what more? Uh, I was just going to say, um, or just sort of agree with you, uh, you know, about the, the Christian aspect. It, it's sort of... Um, it, it's informed by Christianity, um, this song and a couple others later on uh, on the record there's this this strong undercurrent of Christian imagery that that comes into it but he's not he's not doing the the he's not playing the the part or playing the role of the the proselytizing um, evangelical the way that he was on the earlier records like this is um, uh, I think this is a much more successful and and um, just fruitful kind of approach to integrating some sort of Christianity into his songwriting and, and a clear sign that even, you know, even the kind of people who took such offense or took such umbrage at that move of his, which uh, must've been alienating to, to plenty uh, of, of folks at the time. Um, I think those kind of people could, could appreciate a song like this. And, and if, if he, if he had approached it this way um, and, uh, and yeah, I mean, it, it's, uh, it's, it's a very simple, kind of lyric again this record is is the sound of him not trying to do too much but he's it, it's the it's the exact right amount um and lanois has has understood i think the exact right way to package these songs and and this one clearly mm-hmm. struck him as one that needed to be simple and plain and and sort of austere almost um and uh, and just let bob kind of steal the show on his own and so um there is again it, it's not it's not unproduced by any means. There, there's a, a very clear conscious level of production going on here, but it's it's understated. Um, I almost think of them on on this record the same way that we talked a little bit about a couple of weeks ago when um, when uh, Chet White passed away. Um, the, the partnership right. between him and and Chris Owens, um, just like you know him, that Chet White knowing the exact right way to to bring this specific songwriter's vision to life and and package it in the most kind of dramatic and effective kind of way. I feel like that's that's what's going on for the most part on this record. Um, and uh, and Ring Them Bells is really uh, th- there is no better example than than Ring Them Bells. This is also I guess just on a very kind of uh, ooey gooey touchy feeling out this is this is the first song in a while uh in in bob's discography i would say that it's it's actually having like a or has had a kind of emotional impact on me um which uh i know by turning bob's discography into just a a ceaseless content (laughs) mill uh we've kind of sapped some degree of of um you know, uh, emotionality out of a lot of this material, um, and uh, and will continue to do so for the sake of uh, uh, content and and uh, everyone's uh, listening pleasure. Um, but uh, but yeah, this is this is this is one that really just like um, you know uh, is up there with a lot of the uh, earlier material that uh, you know uh, uh, the, the 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 stuff that has made me cry and has made me. 
um, just kind of really get get a feeling somewhere down wet between the ears. Wet between the ears. I just made that up. It's you know for yeah. crying. I think you're thinking wet behind the ears, which is not wet. Wet, wet between the eyes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. No, it, it is. Uh, it is genuinely emotionally impactful. And in your uh, in your defense, uh, in our defense, rather, I don't think that we are doing too much to sap the emotional. Uh, strength from songs like uh, Shenandoah, Ugliest Girl in the World. (laughs) Shenandoah is one that actually has a little, it's the, you picked the worst one to say there because that's the, the one song probably on Down in the Groove that's got some, you know, spirit. Death is not the end. Death is not the end. So I'm going to have people play at my funeral. Yeah. I don't like to think about what that song implies. I'd prefer death to be the end in some ways. <laughs> no escape, baby. Uh no, in in our next life we'll we'll be doing this again. We should be so lucky. But it'll be a podcast about Jokerman podcast. Right, right, yeah. Talking about our legendary lives, you and me, Ian. Uh, the next song is, like I, I said before, this is a nighttime ex- record, and we have the crickets to prove it. There's cricket sounds. This is the man in the long black coat. Sure is. The end of side A. What do you think of this song? I think it's uh, extremely vibey uh, to continue using the same word, uh, but uh, that I think is undoubtedly the best word to describe a lot of these songs. It, it this this is the song I think that is most um, like it. It sounds like it's being recorded in in the bayou somewhere, uh, like literally it does with the, with the crickets or chirping uh, line at the beginning and and the kind of outdoor nocturnal setting that uh Lanois seems to affect with the with the atmospherics and stuff um and uh and yeah bob has is really leaning into this this grizzled old kind of like mysterious storyteller kind of role mm-hmm. in 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 this track to me um uh, the 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 lyrics themselves and the way that he's delivering them crickets are chirping the water is high mm. there's a soft cotton dress on the line hanging dry yeah um, i love that line yeah yeah it's it, there's there's some really arresting kind of imagery in this track i, I would say of, of any of the songs on this first side that are sounding or are written you know kind of impressively the the lyrics themselves this is this is the the standout to me you know what we um, haven't done in a while is talk about what songs um how long how many they've how many times they've been played we haven't done true. that this is uh, this is one of the bigger hits uh, from Oh Mercy, at least according to Bob's uh, concert plays. This is a, a cool 286 plays uh, wow, from 89 to 2013. That's cool. Um, I think that might be the most played on um, on Oh Mercy, uh, at least so that we've gone so far. Yeah, fucking this guy. Ring them bells, 31 plays. Uh, in his entire career from 1989 to 2000. Like, it's, <laughs> people will go lifetimes just hoping to write a song half as good as Ring Them Bells, and Bob has played it 31 times yeah. over the last 30 years. That's pretty amazing, especially that one, which <laughs> I think if he had such played it, if he had played that one a lot, I think it could have been sort of a latter day like honestly i don't know if there's a song other than that one that he's written in the last 40 years that has the the same potential to be like on par with like uh gates of eden it's right. like got that same level of it's it's in that weight class i think yeah 
Yeah, Ring Them Bells. If he wanted plays, it. If he wanted it to be. If he wanted uh, it. 31 plays Ring Them Bells, 284, Everything is Broken. I, he's such a fucking troll. I mean, Everything is Broken is probably very fun to play. Broken I, I guess so. Yeah. Broken strings. Yeah. <laughs> everything. I, it does. There's broken things. Whatever he says. <laughs> it, it does seem like it would probably be well suited to the, you know, the kind of um, uh, current touring band approach that he's And taking. honestly, it's uh, relevant as ever. It, everything is broken. That's true. Everything is still broken. <laughs> Everything's extremely broken. Very broken. Um... Uh, what's what's this song about the the man with the long black coat? I feel like it's yeah, kind of That's... mysterious to me what really it's about. Lanois in an interview was talking about how it's it's like anybody who wanted to run away and join the circus would like this, and I was like, what? I don't know what that meant, but I guess it's just sort of like about you know uh, she went away with like the mysterious stranger, like giving in to the urge to leave everything and just uh, not even have a note. You just, you go away with the, with the dark impulse to explore the mystery. Something like that. Yeah. It's, it's sort of vague um, or, or left un, undetermined whether the, this, this titular man in black is a benevolent presence or, you know, uh, more of a, more of a villain. Um, you know, he's a, he's a man in a long black coat. So you have sort of a sinister idea about him just based off of that. Um, but then some of the lines, you know, uh, he looked into her eyes when she stopped him to ask if he wanted to dance. He, he had a face like a mask. Somebody said from the Bible, he'd quote, you know, man in the long black coat, you think, oh, maybe this is the devil, but I guess he's quoting from the Bible. I think that um, he's a sort of mysterious angel figure. And, uh, you that, know... Is that your... That's your sort of my read on it. I, I think that, he, yeah, he's maybe just sort of a... He represents the sort of uh, endless mystery or something like that. I, I don't know if he... I think he's decidedly not neither good nor evil. I think that he right. is a... Um, a figure that represents the 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 urge to you know you want to you fall in love with the man in the long black coat you're never coming back you know you yeah yeah he's, you're never coming uh, back guess, to your cotton dresses on the clothesline right you're right. you too will be wearing black and and uh you know wandering the desolate earth for fun and profit Yes, it's a good track. Good it is a good. Close. It's a good track. It is a good. It's like kind of a perfect side a closer, I think. Right. It's like got that sort of sense of some finality, but also you know leading you on. Like what's what could possibly be after this? Um, yeah, uh, good one. Good yeah. side, you know. Good sign. Yeah. And it, uh, it comes and goes and doesn't overstay its welcome. And that's something that we're going to continue here on the second side. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the entire album I think is 35 minutes long, something like that. That is, that is really impressive. Long. It really feels longer than that. Um, yeah. Which is, is not a bad thing. It, 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 well, it feels, it feels weightier than that. Weightier. It goes, it goes by pretty quick. Um, right. And it, right. it's one of those kind of records that when you get to the end of it, you, you feel like you can just start it over again. Yeah. Um, well, it's especially because it's missing one of the songs, which would be, you know, <laughs> which would make it uh, really great. Um, thinking, thinking about it a little bit more, I, I think actually, you know, this I did have this thought too, nocturnal. before you say that it maybe was the right choice to not have it on there. Right. Yeah. It, it just, it, it doesn't fit into this like late night, um, you know, middle of nowhere, desolate kind of vibe that, that the rest of the record right. is, is going for a uh, series of dreams is what we're saying. doesn't fit in there. Um, even still, obviously should be on the record. It's an amazing song. Um, but I guess, you know, I guess I, you, you kind of see why Bob would, would have uh, eliminated it if for that reason. Right. Well, I think it's about that time. 
Yep. Listeners, I'm sure you can already hear the harmonica approaching. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm so glad that I found that harmonica sound. It's pretty um, good. It's, I mean, well, it's wonderful. You know, it's the Jokerman harmonica sound now. It's the signature Jokerman exit music. Like the stupid, like atonal, like terrible harmonica <laughs> that I found. It's great. Uh, well, it means that it's time for us to depart um, and to go hang out with the man in the long black coat until next time. Jokerman. Jokerman. Jokerman.